Good morning. We come again to Genesis and we're in chapter 4. We'll be reading from verses 17 to 26, but let's pray before we come to God's holy word. Father, I thank you for your word. I think that every word comes through your hand. I pray for the Holy Spirit's help to speak well of our Saviour Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Well, I hope it's as, as fraction as a fra- at least a fraction as exciting for you to hear the sermons as we go through Genesis as it is for me to study and prepare, because these chapters, which have been so familiar to me and to all of us, are so filled with new things to learn and to see. And verse seventeen to twenty-six of Genesis four is one of those. I mentioned last time that Genesis 4 is divided into three sections, each of which introduced by a similar formula. Verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named, called him Seth. And three times we have this formula, if you remember, the man knew his wife, she conceived, bore a son, this is his name. Three definite sections. We said that we could call this the first, the sin of Cain, then the culture of Cain, finally the hope of Seth. Well, last week we looked at Cain as an individual. This morning we look at the civilization that comes in the line of Cain and how with all those cultural accomplishments, nevertheless it is ultimately bankrupt without the hope of the seed. So let's read together Genesis 4, 17. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujel, Mehujel fathered Methusel, and Methusel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adar. And the name of the other is Zillah. And Adar bore Jabal because he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Neymar. Lamech said to his wives, Adar and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. So she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. One of the most vexing problems for Christians, and I think it's true throughout church history, and particularly true in our cultural moment, is how to understand the relationship between Christ and culture. Many of our disagreements, whether we're thinking about politics or the mission of the church, or even how to raise our families have to do with that question, what is the relationship between Christ and the culture? In the last middle of the last century, there was a theologian named 
called Richard Nyboer, who laid out in a book by the title Christ and Culture five different paradigms. He said that you can have Christ against culture, Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ in culture, Christ in culture in paradox, and Christ the transformer of culture. And he tried to lay out the five the different historical origins and different people who he thinks holds to these different five positions. And though he tried to give some equal weight to all of them, it's pretty clear he felt the last one, Christ the transformer of culture, was the best model. About um, 12 or so years ago, D.A. Carson, Don Carson, published a book called Christ and Culture Revisited, where he looked at Nyboer's categories, those five categories, and offered a justified critique of them. And one of his main critiques that there is no one-size-fits-all, and that each of these categories, with the possible exception of Christ of culture, which Carson argues ends up with being something other than Christianity, like theological liberalism, but he says most of them can be appropriate given different cultural contexts. And it may be in your cultural moment. You need to emphasise in the church Christ against culture, what Christ says to rebuke a godless culture. And other times it might be right to emphasise how Christ stands above culture or how he is the transformer of culture. I'm not going to walk through Nyboa's book or Carson's critique, but it does introduce to us this category. It's how do we live in the world? What is the church supposed to be about? How should we raise children? What I want us to do from the text in Genesis 4 is to mention two errors, two significant and common errors when it comes to understanding Christ and culture. The first error is to think that nothing good or nothing to be enjoyed can come from a culture that does not know God. And sometimes it seems that that is the really spiritual or pious approach. Everything the world does in opposition to God, how could we possibly enjoy then any of its cultural or civilizational accomplishments? We see in this passage that that is an error. Look at verse 17, we're introduced to the line of Cain. Cain knew his wife, now immediately that raises the perennial question, where on earth did Cain get a wife. Well, he married a sister. Now, that, that is not a good idea now. And later on in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Covenant, it will make clear that there are laws against marrying your sister. But here at the very beginning, it seems as if there were no other way somehow it worked. We, re we read in Genesis 5 verse 4 that Adam had other sons and daughters. We believe that all people come from Adam and Eve. So it stands to reason that these were some of Cain's family. It also helps us to sort of think through some of the chrono chronology because we see that many of these chapters have a chronology that is greatly compressed in some places out of order, which does not mean that it is wrong. It means that Moses is arranging it for a certain purpose he has in mind look up at verse 14 remember Cain is cursed and he says you've driven me away from the ground you've hidden your face 
I shall be a fugitive. Whoever finds me will kill me. Now you have to stop to think, who is going to kill you, Cain? Is there anyone else on earth? Well, it could be the timeline is such that this is years and years later and the earth has been populated somewhat before Cain kills Abel. But I think it is likely that Cain is fearing people yet to be born. Well, it makes sense. Cain kills Abel and he knows that his father and mother are going to have more children. It makes sense. His own brothers and sisters yet to be born. Or perhaps some of them already alive at the time are going to hear that he killed Abel and are going to want to avenge the blood of their brother. When you get to the end of the chapter, Adam knew his wife and they have Seth. And clearly this is not happening after the seven generations that have already been detailed from Cain. This happens sometime after the death of Abel. We're not to think that hundreds of years go by before then Seth is born. Though we will read in the next chapter that they enjoy extraordinarily long lives. And Adam will, be will live 130 years before he gives birth to Seth. But I do think we're meant to see here that the earth has been populated and there are civilizations, as we shall see in a moment, being established. And Seth's birth is sometime prior to these seven generations. So look at the history of Cain's family. It is in miniature a picture of the development of culture and civilization. We see civilization in all its wonderful common grace, but also its corrupt fallenness. This first point, we're just looking at the common grace. Notice the very first city, the first human establishment created in the Bible. It's from Cain and his family, the first genealogy. We have many others. We have one in chapter 5, but the first one is from the line, the wicked line, the rejected line of Cain. And it shows that the command of Genesis 1, the blessing of an image bearer, is still bearing fruit in Cain. Subdue the earth and fill it. What does Cain do? Well, his line is doing these very two things, filling the earth, multiplying, subduing it building cities, creating culture. And notice these three brothers come later in the genealogy from Lamech. Ada brought Jabal, his brother's name was Jubal, and they had another brother from Zillah called Chubal. Jabal, Jubal, and Chubal. Jabal, Jubal. To Tubal. Say that a hundred times very quickly. But these verse, verses are telling us something very significant. They're meant to explain where these cultural achievements come from. Jabal was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock, agriculture. Jubal was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe, the father of art and music. And Zilla bore Tubal, Tubal Cain, named after Cain, who is the forger of instruments of bronze and iron. So put all that together. You have the birth of cities, agriculture, metal work, weapons, animal husbandry, craftsmanship, the development of agricultural arts and the sciences. 
coming from Cain, of all people. Remember, by God's grace, even the wicked, even those who do not know the true God, make marvellous contributions to society. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. We give thanks for the cultural artefacts and the civilizational accomplishments of men and women, even those who don't know God, who have produced great breakthroughs in technology or medicine or arts or agriculture, arts, architecture, literature, vaccines. And we see here that even a fallen culture, far from God, can enjoy many common grace blessings. It's hard to see this in our own day, both because we get so used to it and because if you pay attention to the news, the news only tells you bad things. And we can think that we live in the worst of all possible times when actually it is the opposite. By almost every conceivable measure, you and I live in the most prosperous, healthy, amazing time that has ever existed on planet Earth. Even if you love history... I sometimes think, well, what would it have been like to be a pastor in the days of the Great Awakening? And really, if you think about it, none of us would probably want to go back 50 years, let alone 100 years or 500 years. We never appreciate how many common grace blessings we enjoy. Just look at, listen to some of the amazing blessings that we have at this moment in world history. If you look at the world gross product, that is the economic output of the whole world, in 1500, it was 430 million. In 1820, it was 1 1.2 billion. It took over 300 years to triple from 1500 to 1820. Then it tripled again by 1900 to 3.4 trillion. In 2018, from 3.4 trillion, what would you think it would be? Not tripled but all the way to 121 trillion, estimated to be 600 trillion by the end of the century. If you were to plot this on a graph, global economic output, it would look like a flat line almost at zero until about 1850 and 1900, and then it would be a straight line going up. Following the Industrial Revolution, the introduction of free market capitalism, GDP per capita began to skyrocket. From the time of Christ until 1800, GDP per capita was relatively static. If the average person lived in much the same you know, agrarian condition, but in the last 100 or 150 years, GDP per capita has increased tenfold, and that is on average, which is means that it has increased far more in developed countries. Global Population and extreme poverty. Did you know that in 1830, 84% of the world lived in extreme poverty? 84% in 1830. It's 8.6% today. You say, well, that's an average that's just skewed because you have so many rich people. No, since 1952, global inequality among people and between countries has been decreasing. People are far more wealthier than ever before. And you may not feel like it, but we work less. In 1950, the average worker worked 2,123 hours a year. In 2017, the average worker worked 1,723, 400 fewer hours. Since 1960, the number of democracies in the world has been going like this. The number of auto 
has been, has, been, has been increasing. There are far fewer wars than there were 70 years ago. From 18, 1982 to 2016, the, the area covered by trees is increasing in Asia, Europe and North America. The chance of a person dying in a natural catastrophe, earthquake, flood, wildfire, pandemic has declined 99% since the 1920s in 100 years. In, 80, in 1820, the global literacy rate was 10% of the world could read or write. Today it is 90%. In 1820, the life expectancy was 30 it's 81.4, I believe, in our country, 72 worldwide, and over 82 um, years um, average death from COVID even. Infant mortality has plummeted since 1950. In the last 20 years, the rates of TB and malaria have fallen. The number of deaths per capita from cancer are at a 25-year low work related deaths are down child labor is down in the year 1800 60% of the nations on the earth had legalized slavery now the number of countries in the world that have legalized slavery is zero there's still human trafficking in many forms of evil in our world but we've gone from what was a universal occurrence to almost nothing we have more access to clean water we produce crops at unheard of rates it is unfathomable unfathomable to think how different life was and how good we have it for most of human history things have been getting better recently air pollution is declining infectious diseases are declining we have technologies almost every single person Almost everyone has a electricity or a fridge or a car, indoor plumbing, radio, TV, air conditioning, microwave, smartphone, computer, internet, dryers, things that were never even heard of. All I'm saying is we should give thanks for innumerable common grace blessings. And we ought not to think that a society or civilization or culture that does not know God may not be blessed with amazing cultural accomplishments and gifts of prosperity. Now, many of these things we could say can be traced back to certain Christian principles or ideas which gave birth to the modern world. Whether you're a Christian or not, we have seen in the last two centuries, the last two or three decades, an amazing growth of prosperity and decrease in poverty. So let us not make that first error to think that there is nothing good or nothing that can be enjoyed even in a culture that does not know God. The second error is to think that cultural achievement or civilized or civilization's advancement is ultimately what matters most or is pleasing to God. Yes, we want to see unemployment low. Yes, we want to see advancements in vaccine and technology but we must not think that these things are ultimately what matters or are pleasing to God 
Look at all the ways, go back to our text, in which we're meant to see that the line of Cain, for all of its cultural achievements, is fundamentally wicked. Cain built the first city, but he was supposed to be a wanderer on the earth. The fact he built a city was evidence of his rebellion. He was not supposed to build a city. And then he names the city not after the Lord, he names it after his son. He's concerned for his own dynasty and fame. We're introducing the line of Cain to the first polygamist. In verse 19, Lamech took two wives. Sometimes we are uncomfortable that polygamy, polygamy is not explicitly condemned in the Bible, in the Old Testament. But clearly it is shown here with this pinnacle of wickedness that polygamy, polygamy is seen to be a deviation from the order that God created in Genesis 2. And we see throughout the Old Testament that polygamy almost always produces trouble in the family. Abraham, who had relations with Hagar, trying to produce a, an, an heir. And the conflict that this causes in the family with Hagar and Sarah. Or Jacob and the conflict between Leah and Rachel and their servants. David's household fell with his sin with Bathsheba. Solomon fell because of his many wives and concubines. The Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 21 about polygamy seems to assume that one will be loved and one will be unloved. In other words, this is not the way it was supposed to be. He took two wives, Adar, which came, comes from the Hebrew word ornament, maybe pretty, and Zillah, which comes from the Hebrew word tinkling, a pleasant sound on a cymbal. It may be that his wives are named a sweet voice and a pretty face. But here it may be to suggest that something of Lamech's sensuality, that he's looking for trophy wives. Then we have Lamech's poem, The Song of the Sword. The first expression of artistic poetry came from Adam, the second from Lamech. And it's telling us that two poetic, the first two poetic expressions in scripture come in the context of a man and his wife and with Lamech, two wives. How the poems have changed. The first was Adam exclaiming, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Here we see Lamech's song of the sword. Adar and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech is worse than his great-great-great-great-grandfather Cain. Cain was to be avenged seven times. Now he says seventy-sevenfold. Seven being the number of completion. It's like somebody saying a zillion bajillion times. And notice he says, I've killed a man for wounding me. Sometimes we get bent out of shape with the Old Testament adage, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and say it's barbaric. It wasn't barbaric, it was the law of justice. It was the way of restraining vengeance. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, means that you cannot cut off somebody's head for hurting your tooth. You cannot destroy their tribe because they hurt your eye. It was to restrain violence, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But here Lamech kills a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And not only that, for the first time in recorded history, you have someone who celebrates his sin. Adam and Eve are caught in sin. They feel shame for it. They begin to blame shift and make excuses and they hide. 
Cain lies about it and says, I don't know where Abel is. But there is still a sense from Cain that he knows that he should not have killed his brother. That is why he is lying about it. But now, for the first time, as civilization gets worse, corruption grows, Lamech celebrates it without apology. I am a polygamist and I've killed a man and I will be avenged a million, billion, gazillion times. Surely it is not insignificant that the fallen culture of man is noted by two great evils in Lamech. Violence and disintegration of the family. And these were probably two of the most fundamental civilization building blocks. We cannot have a healthy civilization unless innocent life is protected and marriage is honoured. And we see the abdication of both in Lamech. We're supposed to see a profound contrast between the line of the reprobate in Cain and the line of the elect in Seth. Notice again verse 25. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. Now remember what she said in verse 1. I've gotten a man. I did it. I got a replacement for Abel with the help of the Lord. But now there is no boast in Eve. She acknowledges that this has come from God's hand. And notice she does not say a man as she did in verse 1. Because she was seeing herself there in the place of God to create a new man on the earth. No, she uses the important word son and after that offspring. So the narrator says she has a son and then God appointed for me another offspring. Could be translated seed. It is the same word in Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. It's not a stretch to think that Eve sees what is happening here in fulfillment of the promise that god made he has appointed another seed another offspring there is a profound difference between these two lines and we're meant to see the contrast through their similarities cain his line goes seven generations if you start with adam it branches off into three sons jabel tubal and tubal the chosen line through Seth goes down ten generations, as we'll see in chapter 5, and then branches off into three sons, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. The rejected line starts with wicked Cain, and it ends with an even more wicked Lamech. The promised line starts with humanity's founder, Adam, and is going to end with humanity's re-founder, Noah. Well, think about the number seven. In the first half of Genesis 4, you have Abel's name mentioned seven times, brother mentioned seven times, Cain's mentioned two times, seven, fourteen. Seven is an important number. Think about who is seven in each of these genealogies. The seventh from Adam through the line of Cain is Lamech, the embodiment of all that is wrong with fallen humanity. Who is seventh in the line through Seth? Enoch. Enoch who walked with God and immediately is translated into heaven. In other words, you're meant to see the contrast between the two lines. Cain and Seth. That the ultimate, the seventh, would in one, in Cain, lead to Lamech. 
the nadir, the, the nadir of humanity. And the other in the seventh place leads to Enoch, who is godly, just as Lamech is godless. There are two names in common in these two opening genealogies. Enoch is in both lines. In one, he has a city named after him as an evidence of Cain's pride. And in the other, it is Enoch who walks with God. Lamech is in both of those lines. The one, as we've been seeing, who curses anyone who gets in his way. And then the second Lamech, who is going to look for relief from the curse. Genesis 5, verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. So one Lamech curses, the other Lamech looks for the relief from the curse. And most importantly, the most profound difference between the two lines is what God highlights as their cultural accomplishment. Look at the verse, last verse of chapter 4. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. Lord there is in small capital, it's in capital letters, which means the divine name Yahweh. But we know from Exodus 3 verse 13, and Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So how can we say in Genesis 4 that people began to call upon the name of the Lord? Well, it doesn't mean that people hadn't heard of the name of the Lord. Genesis 4 verse 1, now Adam knew his wife, Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord in capitals and Yahweh. We've seen Yahweh in chapters 2 and 3. Yahweh occurs 162 times in, ex, in Genesis before Exodus. So it's not that they have never heard of the name Yahweh, but rather what it indicates is that for the first time there is formal worship of the Lord. There is what we might call a religion of Yahweh. And then later in Exodus there will be this fulfilment and understanding of Yahweh. So G G Genesis 4.26 is not telling us that they understood everything about the name Yahweh. That will be revealed in Exodus. Nor is it saying that this is the first time anyone ever heard the divine name. What I think it is saying is for the first time we have the formal worship of Yahweh on the earth. So Seth's line is known for one thing, worship. You have all the achievements of the line of Cain, agriculture, art, science, civilization. That is what they're remembered for. But Seth's line is noted for worship. And remember, this is the end of the first toldoth. Toldoth, the Hebrew word for generation. This is the first generation that began in Genesis 2 verse 4. The creation of men and women. Chapters 2, 3 and 4 are the first toldoth. The first of these ten sections in Genesis. And it ends the way it does for a reason. It is as if chapter 2 starts and you have this amazing scene of beauty and glory and light with Adam and Eve and all things are good, the beauty of marriage, they're naked and unashamed. And then in the brilliance of this light and this glory, the slithering serpent comes and the clouds roll in, the light disappears, there is darkness. And then as we've seen, the curse begins to infiltrate more and more of the earth and each successive generation gets worse and worse. 
We've gone from the heights to the depth. We've gone from light to darkness. If this was the first chapter in a book, or the first scene in a film, or the conclusion of a film that will have several sequels, it will be dark and rainy and stormy and dismal. And just as it seemed all hope had gone, there'd be a little glimmer of light. A child is born. And not for the last time will that glimmer of light in the midst of so much darkness be a child that is born. It would seem the first round went to the serpent, but not so fast, because the serpent seems to be winning with Cain Lamech. But Eve has another child, and his name is Seth. And he has his own son, and at that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Cain and his family are pioneers in cities and arts and science and industry. Seth and his family are pioneers in worship. One will have passion for the name of man. The other will have passion for the name of the Lord. So mark this in closing. To worship the Lord was a great civilizational advancement and greater than all the advancements of the arts and the sciences. Not to dismiss them, not to discount them, we give thanks for God's common grace. That was the first error we counted. But the second is just as important, or even more so. Our most important collective task as the God's elect, God's chosen people, is to preserve the true worship of the true God, and we can't do that online. Whatever else we may do, and by God's grace, we will have opportunities to contribute to art, science, industry, technology, advancement, literature. And whatever opportunities God may give you, we'll give thanks for those accomplishments in the city of man. But our most important collective task remains with the city of God and to preserve the true worship of the one true God. So let this be an encouragement to you. A life lived in honour. And worship of the one true God is never a waste. A life lived in honour and worship of the one true God is the height of cultural and civilizational achievement. In all the common grace blessings that God has given to us, let us not forget that which is most important. That we would call on the name of the Lord and that we would call on others to do so with us. May God bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good.